Hi, this is Jeff, host of the podcast. If you use the Stitcher app for listening to podcasts, you need to listen to this. Unfortunately, the Stitcher app is closing at the end of August, so you'll need to find a new podcast app, either for Android or your iPhone. And when you start using your new podcast listening app, don't forget to subscribe to the Reading and Writing podcast so you won't miss a single episode. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by Logan Steiner, author of the debut novel, After Anne. Author Sarah Miller wrote about the novel. After Anne is imbued with the love of, of an author for her character, both on and off the page. Logan Steiner made me want to scurry right back to revisit the Anne of Green, Green Gables books as well as delve into every one of L.M. Montgomery's journals. Logan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here and wonderful to hear those words uh, again from Sarah Miller. Wonderful. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your debut novel, After Anne, how would you describe the novel? After Anne tells the story of the author Lucy Maud Montgomery, who gave us the timeless uh, Anne of Green Gables, as well as 20 other books. And the novel really tells the story of what happened just before and after the huge success of Anne of Green Gables that was really, um, you know, unprecedented for somebody from rural Canada, and particularly a woman from rural Canada at the time. So that story is after the dream. Um, and it tells you know, both the triumphs and the tragedies of Ellen Montgomery after that dream come true in her life. Um, you know, the story of her marriage and her um, being a mother of two boys, uh, her writing, you know, such life-affirming characters, but tragically taking her own life in the end and, and what kind of led to that, um, as well as her continuing to write throughout her life and writing these incredible journals throughout her life, too, that were published posthumously, um, and kind of what led her to do that and to edit her journals throughout her life. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing after Anne? I do. I still remember so well um, laying in bed one night with my husband and reading about Ellen Montgomery's life. She was, you know, Anne of Green Gables has meant so much to me since I was a young adult and first read the books and have read them many times since. And I didn't know much about the life of her creator. And I remember reading and just getting chills and being so driven to find out more. Um, and I think that you know, in, in thinking about why I was so interested in the life of a creative woman, I'm somebody who I've I've wanted to be a writer since I was 10. I uh, started telling people that I had dreams of, of being an author when I was that young. Um, but I'm also somebody who's always really been scared to share my writing with others and put my writing out there in the world. I am um, a sensitive sort. And I think that some of the best, uh, you know, the best thing for that I've found is to learn about the stories of creators who have come before me and really how they persisted 
um, through so much in their life, not just kind of the success story, the headline success story, but everything that they went through and kept going through to create what they did. And particularly the lives of, of female authors who wrote, um, you know, some of my most beloved works. And so I think that's one of the best ways to feel less alone in this creative and creative endeavors. And so I don't think it's an accident then that my first book was about the life of one of those creative women who so inspired me. Um, but yes, I was just, you know, I learned that her life had ended tragically in suicide and I, um, knew how much her writing had meant to me. And I just felt so compelled to learn more about her. Well, was there ever a time where you considered writing a biography versus a novel? I didn't. I have always wanted to write fiction. I love how fiction with kind of the the addition of dialogue um, and, you know, really drawing out character can bring history to life. Um, and there is a wonderful and really comprehensive biography of Ellen Montgomery that was a tremendous resource to me. Uh, but I really saw this fiction space as a as a space where uh, there were gaps to be filled in. You know, we know that Ella Montgomery edited her journals, um, and there was this sort of central mystery around why her last three years uh, of her life only have two very, very short entries in her journals, and why there's, you know, there was a page number on a note found by her bed when she died, suggesting that there were many, many more pages that were missing from the historical record. And I think there are really good guesses that we can make in, in her biography, Lucy Mann Montgomery, The Gift of Wings by Mary Henley Rubio, does a beautiful job of kind of surmising what we can know. Uh, but really, the only way to imagine into those unknown spaces is to, uh, is the novel form. And so I thought that there was, uh, there was a lot in particular with Ella Montgomery's story that the novel form could add. Well, did you read those journals as you were researching the novel? I did. I read them cover to cover and went back so many times to make sure I was getting all of the details right. Um, I went through them the first time and kind of took copious notes, and then they were such a tremendous resource to me in my writing. As you were writing the novel and as you were reading the journals, as well as the biography that you mentioned, what do you think is the enduring appeal of Anne of Green Gables? Oh my goodness, it's such a good question. And I think, you know, there may be as many nuances to the answer as there are lovers of Anne of Green Gables, which there are so many of us in the world. Uh, but I think for me, so much of it is about Anne's unfiltered ways um, and just her uh, drive and determination to. Uh, really create and express herself and express herself exactly as she is in the world. I think particularly as a young person still today, I have such a hard time. You know, I'm, I'm somebody who is always working to become less filtered. I um, have always cared tremendously what people think and been very sensitive to what people think, as Anne was too. Uh, but she really um, put her dreams and her hopes and her desires and her um, her experience of nature and the world on her sleeve, wore it on her sleeve, and was so um, just wonderfully verbose and precocious and 
I think reading her when I originally read uh, the Anne of Green Gables series and then, you know, still today, she just inspires me to say exactly what I mean and to be less scared to be myself in the world. And I think that's a big part of the enduring appeal. Well, do you journal yourself? I do journal myself. Yes. And I have kept journals since I was about that age, you know, about 10 years old when I uh, first had those dreams of authorship. I've journaled pretty regularly throughout all of those years. Uh, what I do now is keep more of a daily journal, as particularly with um, having a young daughter. I find that if I write, I can write a few lines a day. <laughs> that is a that is a success. And so my journaling practice is is different now than Maud's was. Maud would kind of take months at a time and really summarize them in these eloquent, eloquent entries that I I can't recommend her journals for. You know, they're really not just kind of day-to-day record keeping, but these uh it's it's really her narration of her life story with her same beautiful prose that you find in her books. And so she would, you know, wait until she was ready to write about something and then write a kind of longer entry about it. Um but yes, the journal keeping is very much a way in which I've always related to Maud. What was your own writing journey that led you to writing and getting your debut novel published? Oh my goodness, it has been a long journey um, and one of a lot of persistence as so many authors' journeys are with the debut in particular. But I, uh, like I said, have wanted to write since I was young. I was an English major and did a lot of creative writing in college. Uh, but I also have this very practical side of me. And, um, you know, it comes, my my mom is an artist and she always taught fiber arts and at a, at a college and was a big believer in you don't put uh, the pressure to make money on your creative dreams. And so she had, you know, this kind of steady, stable teaching jobs throughout her career. And she instilled that in me. So I, coming out of college, um, went to law school knowing that that was a career that does involve a lot of writing. And so I could kind of keep that alive, but it it would be a um, kind of steady, stable career with a lot of flexibility in terms of what I ultimately did and where I lived. And I hoped to be able to always write on the side. Um, It took me a while once I started practicing to get back to those uh, creative dreams. It can block can be very consuming, especially in the early stages. And I was working a lot of <laughs> nights and weekends at a big law firm and um, did judicial clerkships, which were kind of all intensive. And um, you know, was was honing my editing skills, was owning my honing my kind of discipline and organization and research skills. But uh, it took me a while to get back to those creative dreams. Um, and it was actually um, kind of a, a personal tragedy in my life of, of losing my brother suddenly um, that put things into such perspective for me. It was, um, you know, kind of the greatest loss that I've experienced and just um, such a devastation and really made me realize that you know, it's it's so easy to say time is short, but um, to live like it and to really feel it um, is a different thing. And it made me so motivated to get back to this work that I 
had long said that I wanted to do. And um, so, you know, it was nine months after that that I started the research and I kind of got the inspiration and, and started the research for this book. Um, and now eight years later, <laughs> it's not been a short journey. Um, it's been published. So it was, you know, quite a journey to write, to research and write it. I was doing it on the side of my law career, a lot of it in 20 minute increments when I could fit them in. That was kind of my daily minimum. Um, and then I, um, and then, you know, it took a while to find an agent and then a while to have it land in its publishing home. And there was, there were many times along the way that I, I didn't, uh, it was hard to keep the faith that this would, um, that this would find its way into the world. Uh, but, you know, the times that I stepped away from the project and came back, there was just always such a pull. I, I felt um, such a understanding of and, and draw to tell this story of Maud and to tell, you know, um, parts of the story that really aren't fully explored in, in the biography or in her journals for readers um, and so I kept getting pulled back in and really each time that I went back into the manuscript, I uh, had a new realization for myself that was, you know, it was just kind of uncanny how it was like, oh, the book needs, you know, <laughs> I needed to learn this lesson at this point in my life. Um, and it really kind of kept doing that over and over again. So I very much hold that like this book took the time that it needed to, uh, to get to the best version that I could make it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You mentioned earlier that, uh, I, I can't remember the exact words, but you were basically saying that, that you know, um, you kept your, your fiction writing private and it was something that was very personal to you. Given that, how were you able to to navigate the process of finding an agent and and a publisher? Because kind of built into that is a lot of rejection. Yes, yes. And I think it was, you know, slowly, incrementally getting braver. And I took so much from Maud's journey in that, you know, she was just so persistent and she was a deeply feeling person. So she took rejection, you know, really seriously and had a lot of it um, in her early life publishing stories and poems and learning about her really uh, inspired a lot of bravery. And there was, you know, a lot of that, but it was, it was really kind of a slow, steady coaxing of myself to open up more and more to sharing and, um, you know, because of that kind of private nature, I'm somebody who didn't use, I didn't use a writing group. Um, my husband was my sure first and me? best reader, um, who has read the book so many times Hello? and been such a huge, um, I, Hello? I didn't know this, you know, going into our relationship that he would be, have just this keen editorial eye and, and be so interested in the projects that I'm working on creatively, but he was just such a gift, um, 
And then, you know, slowly I, I opened up. What was your writing process when you were working on After Anne, given that it was, um, given that it was a book about a, uh, a, a histor- you know, a, a writer who, who was an actual writer in history? Did you do um, a lot of outlining and plotting? How, how did that process work for you? Yes. Um, I am pretty methodical in my process. I think I take that from my my law career and my research instincts. So I um, spent a lot of time outlining and really my I started with the journals because they were the closest way for me to get into Maud's mind, into, you know, I wanted to get as close to Maud as possible to really write her internal monologue. And so as I was going through the journals kind of meticulously, I was taking notes on the parts that uh, kind of sparked the most interest based on, um, you know, wanting to tell the story of what happens after this tremendous success. And so I kind of took meticulous notes and then I conceived of the kind of three acts of the story kind of as the three parts of a, of a tragedy pretty early. And so I had kind of the main three parts that move you forward in time pretty early in my thinking. And then I was taking notes and outlining around those three pieces of the book. And because I had that framework um, from the journals, then as I was going through the biography, as I was going back through nonfiction, as I was going through secondary sources, I could take notes on really the most salient pieces from those other sources, because there's so much out there about Ellen Montgomery that to really stay organized, I found to be really key. And so I did a lot of outlining before I started writing and researching before I started writing. And then I did a lot more continuing outlining and researching as I was writing. Given your experience of of writing and and editing and now getting your debut novel published after in, what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories or novels? Absolutely. So persistence is so key. It was such a p- key piece of my journey. And I heard this quote recently at a writing conference that um, the the way to find success or the key to success in in this business is to be um, the best equipped to deal with failure. So those those who find you know are most successful are really those who can best best withstand the failure. And I feel like that was such a part of the journey. And not to say that any part of dealing with rejection or failure was easy for me. It wasn't. I you know felt through all those things, and I kept going. And I think you know that. That is a huge piece um, that I would tell other writers, um, as well as to really keep coming back to what you're taking kind of in your own personal journey and from what you're writing, because that is the part that's within our control. There's so much that's not in our control. But uh, for me, I kept coming back to I'm taking so much from Mob's story that is helping me in my life, that's making me a bigger, better person in the world. And that was the part that really kept me going. So keep asking yourself, like, you know, why am I doing this? You know, it's kind of become trite now to say, you know, do it for you, do it for you. And of course, there, we do it for us. We do it for the readers. We want it to reach and touch people. 
But I think for me, it was, you know, how is this moving me? How is this helping me grow in my life? That question was really motivating in terms of how I got to keep persisting with it. Are you working on a new novel now? I am working on a new novel. Yes. Um, It's a multi-generational story. Um, Still uh, fleshing out a lot of the details, but it will definitely touch on the creative life. That's kind of my primary subject that I'm interested in, as well as uh, motherhood and, and particularly uncertainty around motherhood, which is something that I felt for many, many years myself and I'm really interested in exploring in my next book. Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, my goodness. So many. Um, I I recently finished Elizabeth Strout's Lucy by the Sea, uh, which is I highly recommend. Um, it is has kind of her characteristic, beautiful prose and really takes on uh, the pandemic and sort of this uh, divorced couple who come to live together during the pandemic. And I just th- thought it took on that subject in such a, a beautiful way and a brave way to take it on so soon. Um, you know, as as the pandemic was kind of happening, um, she wrote about it. Um, and then I'm right in the middle of The Paris Deception by Bryn Turnbull, who um, is a fabulous historical fiction author from Canada. And I'm doing an event with her on Monday. And I'm so excited for that and have really been enjoying the read. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel after Anne? You can find me on my website. Um, I have an unusual name, so hopefully it's pretty easy to find. Uh, Logan Steiner, S-T-E-I-N-E-R.com. Um, and there you can find links to my Substack, where I write each week about creative decision-making and decision-making around parenthood, um, as well as social media. So you can find links to, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Again, we've been speaking to Logan Steiner, author of the debut novel, After Anne. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Logan, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. So wonderful to be with you. Absolutely. Stuart turned onto his mother's street and instinctively slowed the car. He clutched the wheel. Swallowing hard, he fought against a scream, pushing up through his throat. He kept thinking about the patient he should have been visiting that afternoon. She was young, younger than Stuart, and far too young to be in the business of having babies. Usually, the young mothers healed quickly, but not this one. He still couldn't figure out why. She had a long nose, crooked in the middle, and feminine eyes he worried could see all the way through him. Would the doctor filling in for Stuart arrive at the woman's house on time? Would he have the medicine he needed? He would be missing Stuart's careful notes. The woman's family had filled her bedroom with flowers. There must have been five vases of them, all in shades of yellow. They reminded Stuart of childhood summers during the good years, with the house full of vases of flowers cut from his mother's garden. When he pictured his mother hard at work in her garden, pulling out vegetables and holding them up with a smile so big her teeth showed, his scream became harder to stifle. He shook his head, 
The urge to scream struck him as odd at a time like this. The car seemed to park itself. It occurred to Stuart that he might have tried crashing it into the curb. When else in his life would he be forgiven for such a lack of discipline? He waited after parking, looking down to where his hands gripped the wheel. You have your mother's hands, people said. His chin fell to his chest, and then the tears came. His mother. His mother, the great author. His mother, the beloved orator. His mother, who made a fan of the Prime Minister of England, who turned a no-name island into a world-famous tourist attraction. His fervent coach and forever critic. How could such a life be gone from the world on a day so bright and ordinary, with the newly laid pavement gleaming in the sun and the wind blowing a stray piece of newspaper down the road? But here was Dr. Lane, with his knuckles rapping on the car window, his voice muted by the glass. Dr. McDonald, Dr. Stewart. Dr. Lane must have also gotten a call from his mother's maid, Anita. Before Stewart could respond, his hands had moved, one to the door handle and the other taking the keys. Then he and Dr. Lane slipped past the front hedges, which looked no less alive than they had the week before, in what struck Stewart as frank disrespect to the matron of the house. He pictured them as they should have looked, their top branches drooping in grief. His mother would have liked the image. Dr. Lane handled the front door, and Stuart followed him up the staircase. Stuart felt different when he reached the top of the stairs, relieved. The bedroom door was closed. It would have been. His mother kept it that way. His brother Chester was always barging in without asking, but Chester was not there to supply his usual dose of chaos. He must not have heard the news. And their father, fully caught up in his own inner world for years now, was surely keeping to his spaces in the house. Left to his own devices, how long would it have taken his father to open the bedroom door? And if he had, how much would he have understood? It never occurred to Stuart that Dr. Lane might open the bedroom door, until he did. Stuart stayed with Dr. Lane's stride on entering. He made the only choice he decided that he had, to treat this as he would any difficult day on the job. Stuart was a medical professional. His mother had made sure of that. Why don't you take care of things on the bedside table, Dr. McDonald? Dr. Lane said, motioning toward it. I'll take care of your mother. The table was small. This could be simple. His eyes went first to the bottles of pills. He wondered why they made them all the same color, so hard to tell apart. Stuart's heartbeat had felt too high in his chest, and now it hopped up even higher. When he reached the table, Stuart picked up the bottles one by one and tried to look like he was studying the labels. He contemplated taking out his notepad and copying down the drug names and dosages. 